0: And if you would open your Bibles to John chapter 2. Our text this morning is verses 13 through 22. Please hear the Word of God. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume Me. So the Jews said to Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, help us to believe the word of the Lord Jesus even as it has been read and proclaimed, we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. The Passover, even to this day, is the greatest religious festival in Jerusalem, or in, in, Jude- in Judaism. And so as we come to John chapter 2, verse 13... Uh, The Passover is at hand, and it is not surprising that Jesus is on His way up to Jerusalem with His new disciples in order to worship. Can you see, as He's approaching Jerusalem, as He's headed toward the temple? At this time, He was still unknown to the crowds. Even the religious leaders at this time were unaware of Him. Maybe if there were some religious leaders who had been at the Jordan River and John the Baptist was baptizing and when John the Baptist cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Maybe they might have been um, aware of Christ. But other than that, at this point He was unknown. Forget our theology from the bumper stickers. We can imagine what Jesus would be saying as He approached Jerusalem. He'd be calling out to the people in the streets, Smile! God loves you! Or He might be saying, I'm knocking at the door of your hearts and I'm weeping. Please let me in. Or He might even be saying, I am love, love, love all the time, time, time. This is the picture that is painted of Jesus that the world sees. Little wonder that the world does not respect him. But the Bible paints a very different picture of Jesus. We we will see this morning, Lord willing, uh, we will see the biblical picture of Jesus in verses fourteen through seventeen when he steps over the threshold of the temple and then goes in to worship. But before we get there, I want us to pause for a moment. I want to read to you a short news report that appeared uh, at the beginning of this week. Uh, maybe some of you saw it on Facebook. My wife saw it and pointed it out to me. It took place in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. A Carolina church has introduced a controversial plan to charge, admission, to charge an admission fee to attend their Sunday morning service. Um, The fee was a direct result of the church members and visitors not giving enough offering to keep the doors open. The church's pastor uh, spoke with local news station, uh, WSTV, saying, we realize charging members to attend church would not be a popular decision. However, it was necessary to remain operational. There's a lot that goes on to make these services happen. Without a sufficient amount of donations, the church would have to operate at a loss. We are in the business of saving souls, but we are also a business. Salaries and bills have to be paid. Saving souls ain't cheap. (laughs) Members of of Mount Ebenezer Baptist Church will be allowed to pay a discounted yearly membership fee (laughs) of $60.00. While visitors will pay ten dollars at the door. <laughs> the church says they will also also offer a twenty-five dollar family discounted admission fee throughout the four family members. Entrance to the church will be free on all days except for Sunday worship service. Children under twelve will be allowed to enter the church without paying. How gracious. <laughs> I I, I was not going to put this into a sermon until I double-sourced it because I couldn't believe it to be true. How do you think Jesus would react to this policy? Let's look at verses 14 through 17, and I imagine we will find out. Now, before we look at what Jesus did in verses 14 through 17, let me explain to you the layout of the temple very briefly. Of course, the inner room of the temple was the Holy of Holies. No one could go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. Outside um, of the Holy of Holies was the um, holy place or... Uh, some uh, p- people call it the sanctuary. This is where the, the table of showbread, uh, the lampstand, and the altar of incense were located. And then outside of that was the court of the priests. This is where the bronze laver and the, the altar of sacrifice was located. And then outside of that was a smaller area. It was the court for the Jewish men. They could go and worship there. Beyond that was a a bit larger court. It was for the Jewish men and women. And all this was in the temple building. Outside the temple building was the court of the Gentiles. It was an enormous open courtyard. It measured 300 yards by 500 yards. So uh, three football fields by five football fields. So it was quite big. Uh, And even though there were no buildings in this courtyard, it was still very much a part of the temple. In fact, it was the only place where the Gentiles could go and worship in the temple. And so it was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now you know from our study of Abraham's life in the book of Genesis that it was always God's intention to redeem the Gentiles and call them to Himself. And so it's not surprising then that God would make provision for the Gentiles to worship God in the temple Um, because this provision for the Gentiles to worship in the temple uh, foreshadowed God's uh, original, eternal intentions to draw all peoples to Himself. But when Jesus went into the temple, into the courtyard of the Gentiles. Worship was not the activity that he found going on. When he came into the courtyard, what he found was a marketplace. Look at verse 14. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And so there were cattle stalls, there were sheep pens, there were pigeon coops, uh, all so that people could conveniently buy an animal for sacrifice uh, in their worship. And it's likely that there were competing vendors, so there may have been a cattle stall over here, a cattle stall over here, sheep pen over here, sheep pen over here, and the different vendors calling out loudly, trying to attract the attention of um, of the people coming in to worship. Quite uh, noisy, for sure. And uh, then there were, of course, the money changers who were all too eager to ply their trade. All this is going on in the place where God had set aside for the Gentiles to worship. Now, you could argue that this marketplace was necessary to assist the people in worship, but not inside the the temple courtyard. So, because maybe it's necessary, maybe Jesus should use patience and diplomacy and ask these people to move outside the temple walls to have their marketplace. Jesus did exercise some patience. I think He patiently found some cords. And he deliberately made a good, strong whip. But then his patience gave way completely to his zeal. He began cracking the whip. He opened the cattle stalls, the sheep pens. He started driving out the animals, started driving out the people out of the temple area. And he didn't stop there. He overturned the tables of the money changers, and then he scattered their money everywhere. Then He turned to those who were selling doves, and He demanded, take these things away. Do not make my father's, my father's house a house of trade. And so look at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. What do Jesus' words and His actions tell, tell, tell us about His character and His priorities? I think it tells us that Jesus was zealous for His Father's glory. I think it tells us that worship was a priority for Him. And I think it tells us that He was angered by lazy or false worship. What do Jesus' words and actions tell you about your own character and your own priorities? How zealous are you for God's glory? Can you think of an instance in your recent past where you were zealous for God's glory? Can you think of an instance where you were willing to go against the grain or look like a fool or suffer reproach in order to promote God's glory. Or how about this? How important is worship to you? How actively do you participate in the worship service? Or do you just passively go through the motions? I remember one of my professors um, was asking, "What if God only hears the 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 words we sing?" As they arrive and as they arise and worship from our hearts, what if He doesn't hear the words that we just mouthlessly um, uh, let pass over our lips, without actually giving praise to God? And He went through and He was using some hymn, and every fifth or sixth word He'd say the word um, to illustrate. You know, probably just how passive sometimes we are in worship. How often we're just going through the motions and are too lazy to even think about what the, the message of the hymn is all about. Or the glory of God that the hymn is intending to direct us to. So, how actively... Do you participate in the worship service or do you passively go through the motions? Or how do you prepare for worship? Do you show up, just show up on Sunday mornings? Or do you worship God through the week so that Sunday morning is the crowning piece of your personal worship? Children and teenagers. Do your parents have to do everything short of pouring cold water on you to get you out of bed on Sunday mornings? And this question is not directed to them. well directed to them. It's directed to all of us. Do you care what Jesus thinks about your attitude and your participation in worship? Do you care? You can imagine that the crowds, especially the money changers and the priests in the temples, that they would not simply go home after Jesus drove them from the temple. Uh, And of course, they did not go home. They went back in and they challenged Jesus. They wanted to know what sign He could give to them to prove His authority for what He did. Jesus refused to give them a sign. I think there are several things that strike me about Jesus' refusal. First of all, I cannot imagine the boldness of Jesus uh, refusing to give them a sign when there is this whole crowd that is pressing against him. Could have been a hundred or hundreds of people that were there confronting him. By what sign or what authority? Have you done this? He says, I'm not going to give you a sign. That's boldness. Secondly, if we peek ahead to next week's passage, verses 23 through 25, um, we, we see that Jesus did perform many miracles uh, later in the week. So verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, remember he's just heading to Jerusalem because Passover feast is coming up um, in verse 13. But here's the Passover feast. Uh, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And so he's just not going to give them any sign now. Um. And so it makes it all the more striking that He refused their demand in verse 18. And then also, uh, verses 24 and 25 gives us a hint, I believe, why Jesus refused to give them the sign. Uh, He knew what was in their hearts and that they would never accept His authority over them. So verse 24 and 25... But Jesus on His part did not entrust Himself to them because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for He Himself knew what was in a man. So instead of giving these people who were pressing against Him, demanding a sign after He has driven them from the temple, instead of giving them a, a miraculous sign, He gave them a rebuke. He answered them by saying, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Sounds like a riddle, doesn't it? But it's really a statement that is pregnant with biblical truth. They did not realize when they were asking Him for a sign that everything in the temple, the buildings, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the the table of showbread, um, the, the altar of sacrifice, even the priests who were doing their work, and even the worship that the people were engaging in, all these things pointed to Jesus. And so the temple was a physical sermon saying to the people of Israel that God would make His dwelling place with mankind. And that in spite of their sin, God would cover over their guilt by the shed blood of the Lamb of God. And in completely free grace, He would cause His glorious presence to dwell with them. Now, instead of seeking to understand what Jesus said when He said in three days or you destroy this this temple and in three days I'll raise it up instead of trying to figure out what Jesus was saying the Jews simply dismissed Him uh, and began mocking Him look at verse 20 the Jews then said it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days and it just seems like they just dismissed Him Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1:22 1, and 23 Jew, "For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles." The Jews in John chapter 2 were stumbling all over Jesus. Jesus was referring here by this statement to the fact that the Jews would put him on the cross, that they would attempt to destroy him, that he would rise from the dead, and on the third day, I mean, he would rise from the dead on the third day, and thus secure our redemption. And verse 21 confirms this to be the case. It says, "But he was speaking about the temple of his body." And you'll notice, as a side note, as we move through the Gospel of John, that the Apostle uh, uh, loves to break in with a little commentary to make sure that the reader understands exactly what's happening. I think this is one of the reasons why uh, the Gospel of John is so helpful to unbelievers. All these little commentaries, these little points of clarification that the Apostle John gives us. And so he gives one more point of clarification. Verse 22, When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the Word that Jesus had spoken. So, there's the temple and there's Christ. The temple pointing to Christ. We no longer have a temple. I believe that God allowed that temple to be destroyed in order that they could no longer offer sacrifices, in order that the Jews would, would ultimately see that their sins needed to be taken care of, but without a way of sacrificing, how are their sin, sins going to be taken care of? Well, flee to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. But this temple is no longer here. But the temple is still relevant. This idea of the temple in Christ is very relevant. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. And you answer for yourself, where is the temple today? Paul said, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Of 1 Corinthians six eighteen through 20 Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 16 through 18. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Here's the point. Because Christ died and then rose from the grave, all who entrust themselves to Him are united to Him. The Holy Spirit places you irrevocably into Christ. And since you are in Christ, it also means Christ is in you. Wherever you go, whatever you do, Christ is with you and in you. Here's the application. Jesus lives in you and you in Him. And because He is in you and has purchased you for Himself... He is exercising lordship over your life. You were bought with a price we just read from 1 Corinthians 6. Therefore, He demands lordship over everything in your life. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, your desires. Everything belongs to Him. I'm going to conclude with this Illustration. I, I played football in high school. I was on a state championship team. I played both ways. In fact, I only came off um, for the punt team the entire time. That's the only time I came off the field. I, I felt like I was pretty important to this state championship football team. I had uh, driver's education, and one of my football coaches was my teacher. Well, we're cool, right? <laughs> My homework, I would do it about 20 minutes before class, one word answers. It was all right, but it was very lazy. And he gave me a low grade. Even though I pointed to him, every answer is correct. He said, every answer is lazy. He said, you were a football player. I was thinking, well, I can get away with things because I'm a football player. He said, I expect more of you because you are a football player. Jesus demands not just that we be a little bit better than the world. Jesus demands not that we be much better than the world. Jesus demands that we be holy. We were bought with a price. We are God's temple. We are God's reflection to a lost and dying world. He demands that we be holy. What is your attitude toward Jesus and His Lordship over your life? I want you to ask that question as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Almighty God. Help us to be honest, brutally honest. To open the door of our hearts. Not to let Jesus in, but rather that He might search us, examine us, know us, see if there be any wicked way in us, see if there be any false way in us, See if there be any way in us that we are reserving for ourselves and not giving over to Him. We were bought with a price, the precious price of His blood. And so help us to worship Him with our body, with our minds, with our words, our actions, even our desires. We pray in His name. Amen.